On May 14th of 1948, the nation of Israel came back to life. It had been nearly 1900 years since it uh, was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. The world was shocked at this. But Jews from all over the world, mostly from Europe after the Holocaust, but also from the United States and other places, were flocking to Israel, immigrating there to become Israeli citizens. In 1951, that included my parents. When they got to Israel, um, because it's a new nation and a lot of the world's resources were being funneled into the parts of the world where there had been so much destruction from the war, like Europe, uh, there wasn't a lot available for Israel, for this tiny new nation. And so once again, the Jews are having to fight for their existence, their struggle. And um, everything was rationed. My mother used to tell me stories about how uh, they'd get maybe a pound of meat a week or a pint of milk or you know, two or three eggs, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, you could buy some things on the black market, but of course it was much more expensive. And so when they got there, they were initially living in a tent with uh, my dad's mother. Eventually, they were able to obtain a, an apartment. And being newlyweds, they conceived me. My mother was uh, about uh, five months pregnant. She went for her checkup, and she weighed about 95 pounds. So the doctor told her, uh, told my dad, you know, that if he didn't get her to some place where she could get the kind of nutrition she needed, she was probably going to lose the baby and he might even lose her. So he decided to forego his dream of being an Israeli citizen and sent uh, my mother back to the States for her family to nurse her back to health. He stayed behind to sort of finalize all their affairs and that sort of thing. And, um, uh, in that process, he began contacting um, many of his friends. My dad had been at one time very successful financially. He knew a lot of people, I'd say a ton of people. Uh, many of them were uh, wealthy, uh, and, you know, owned their own companies, their own businesses, that sort of thing. And um, he, as he's contacting these people, he's not having a lot of uh, opportunity, but finally one of them had an opening uh, at a position at the kind of pay he needed in Corpus Christi, Texas. So he wired my mother and told her to meet him in Corpus, which she did, and that's where I was born. So I was conceived in Israel, but I was born in a city whose name in Latin means body of Christ. When I was about two years old, my parents moved us to the high desert of El Paso, Texas, and that's where I grew up. Uh, in the mid-1970s, uh, I moved to Houston. I was working for a company in El Paso where we did business with a company in Houston, and uh, my contact person there, we got to kind of be phone friends, and um, he asked me one day what I was making, and I told him, and he said, oh, man, you need to come to Houston. It's booming. You'll get a job within a few days making a lot more money. And he was right. So I did move to Houston. Um, within a few years, I met a young woman, and we were married in 1977. 
growing up in a very religious and very conservative Jewish home, uh, when I became a teenager, I began to ask questions. And my dad really didn't have good answers to these questions. Like, why do we, uh, why do we have to pray these prayers in Hebrew? I don't even know what I'm praying. Why can't I read the English? Because that's the way we do it. You know, <laughs> that was kind of his answer. And so I began to be very turned off by the religiousness of Judaism. It just felt very empty to me. But in 1979, I began to have not necessarily being drawn to be religious, but I had some sense of of coming back to Judaism a little bit. And uh, I began attending a conservative synagogue in Southwest Houston, um, and I started doing that regularly. And finally, when the uh, the high holidays came around, the end of September, early October, especially the the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Um, I decided that year that I was going to really give it a shot. I was going to fast the 24 hours you're supposed to fast, no water, no food, nothing, and be in the service the evening before because everything in Judaism is from sundown to sundown. And then the day-long service that started at 8 in the morning and went all the way to sundown, I was going to really give it a, a real shot. Well, being in that long day service toward the end of the day as, as we're approaching sundown, I began to feel that old frustration again, where I'd done all these prayers and gone through all these motions and doing this stuff, you know, and it just felt empty again. And so um, I got up and I went and found a um, kind of a an area where I could be sort of alone, still within the, the sanctuary, but um, kind of a, my own little corner. And I took my prayer shawl and put it over my head so it would act as kind of a curtain in front of my face. I could have a little privacy. As I stood there, I said, God, I've heard about you all my life. I know stories about you. I don't doubt that you exist. And it's not that I need a higher power in my life right now like you know, to like rescue me from something bad. Nothing bad is really going on. But I just feel drawn that I, it's like I want to know you. Who are you? Not, not just tell me you're God. And, and these things I'm doing, all these prayers and the rituals, is this really what pleases you? Is this really what you want? I don't feel like I know you. You seem very far away. I do want to know you. And I got kind of emotional about it. And uh, so at any rate, the service ended at sundown, and I went home, and I broke my fast. And the next morning, I went to work, and you know, it wasn't long before I kind of forgot the whole thing. So that was at the beginning of October. November, December, January, February, March, April. It's the week of Easter. I, one evening, my wife has gone to the store, the grocery store for something, and uh, I'm looking for something to watch on TV. I have a colored TV, but no remote control yet. And so you had to stand at the TV and click the knob going through the channels. Here in Houston at that time, there were the three major networks. And uh, I don't remember if it was three or four UHF channels. So I'm, I'm going through the channels looking for something to watch. And I come upon something that's like a B-rated movie. In other words, 
none of the actors were none of the people in it were people that you would recognize. And it's also like an old, um, it's an old times, ancient times. There's, uh, I see, it looks like some soldiers that, I don't know if they're Greeks or Romans. And they're, there's this guy and they're pushing him through the street and he's carrying a piece of wood and there's a big crowd and everyone's yelling. And I thought, oh, okay, this is like a guy flick, you know, uh, a little, little drama, some action, you know, they're going to torture this guy or something. So I got an apple and I sat down and I'm watching this scene and um, they finally get him to a certain place and they throw the piece of wood down on the ground. They throw him on top of it. And uh, then the camera focuses in on the actor's face, but you then begin hearing a hammering sound, hammering a nail of some sort and the, the grimace of pain on the, on the actor's face struck me. And it's almost as if someone said to me, why are they doing this to this innocent man? I about jumped out of my skin. It's like, who said that? What? And how do I know this guy's innocent? I just had only been watching for a few minutes. I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know what this was. It freaked me out. Just to pause there for a moment, jump ahead just a little I was later to find out that what I was watching was called the Jesus film, which had been uh, actually shown in various places around the world at that time. I didn't know that. So back to the story. So uh, I just kind of blew that off, changed the channel, and uh, went about my life. And uh, not too long after that, I was having lunch with uh, someone I worked with named Russell. And as we're eating, Russell turns to me and he says, uh, so Gary, uh, what do you think a Christian is? I, you know, I thought about that for a moment. Most of my friends were Gentiles, which to me meant Christian in the sense that they weren't Jews, of course. They weren't Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims. You know, they're uh, Christians. They maybe go to church on Christmas or they go to church on Easter, something like that. And so I, I said that. I said, well, yeah, I guess a Christian is a uh, Someone that believes in Jesus and goes to church, to a church. Um, to which Russell said, well, yeah, um, Christians do that, but what is a Christian? Well, I thought I'd answered him. So I thought, well, um, maybe I left something out. Oh, oh, yeah, they, it's someone that uh, like gets baptized. I didn't really know what that was about. Uh, they, uh, they take communion. Again, I really didn't know what that was about. He said, again, well, yes, Christians do that, but what is one? So I said, well, I, gee, I, I guess I don't know. He said, well, uh, I'll tell you about it sometime. And he changed the subject again. So no big deal. Well, sort of. Because a few days later, it was bothering me that I didn't know what a Christian was. So I went to Russell. And I said, hey, Russell, remember you told me you're going to tell me what a Christian is. Uh, how about now? He looks at his watch. He says, oh, man, I'm late for an appointment. I got to go. I'll, I'll get with you, Gary. I promise. I'll get with you. And he rushes off. So another few days go by, and I go to him again. I say, Russell, uh, remember you're going to tell me what a Christian is? He said, oh, man, I'm so behind on paperwork. I'm just, I don't have time right now, Gary, but I promise I'll get with you, and I'll tell you about it. Well, this goes on several more times over the next several weeks, and it's really beginning to bother me. Why do I not know what a Christian is? And why won't Russell tell me? What's the, what's the problem here? So 
on the on the evening of May 14th, again the same day, but 1980. I told my wife, I said, I'm going to call Russell and I'm going to ask if we can come over and see the new house he and his wife had just moved into. They were a young couple like us with no children yet. And uh, But the real reason I want to go over is I want to make him tell me where the Christian is. I'm tired of him putting me off. So I called him and asked if we could come over and see the new house. And he said, oh, yeah, sure, come on. So we we went over, and of course we had the little tour, you know, being shown the empty bedrooms because they came from a one bedroom apartment, the empty bedrooms with no furniture yet, no curtains or blinds on the windows yet, you know, that kind of thing. And um, finally, we sit down, have a glass of iced tea, and we start talking. And at one point, I said, uh, "So, uh, Russell, remember you told me you were going to tell me where the Christian is? Um, how about now?" I mean, you don't have anything else to do. And he looked at me and he said, well, are you sure you want to know? Now, I I wanted to actually get upset, you know, like, well, yes, I've been bugging you about it. and You've been blowing me off. But I didn't say that. I tried that cool, you know, like, well, yeah, you know, I mean, if you got time. Um, he's like, okay. So he got up and he, he got a book and he came over and sat down on the couch right next to me kind of violating my man space a little bit. And he looks at me and he says, Gary, have you ever told a lie? Oh, my God. I, I was stunned by this question. I mean, why didn't he ask, say something like, so, Gary, have you ever hunted your fellow man? Uh, do you sell drugs? Are you a hemp? <laughs> you know, no. Have you ever told a lie? Well, I had lied to come over to his house. I didn't want to come over and see the new house. I didn't care about the new house. I was going to make him tell me where the Christian is. So I lied to him. I deceived him. And so I got a little panicky and I tried to still keep my cool. I said, well, yeah, you know, people lie you know, from time to time. He said, no, Gary, I'm asking you, have you ever told a lie? Oh, my gosh. I. I, it's like someone is standing on my chest. It's called conviction. So I said, well, yes, I have on occasion, trying to, again, not sound too evil. He says, well, I guess what it says here is true. And he opened the book and he pointed to a place on the page and he read it to me. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now I can feel that pressure on my chest again. It's now much worse. And I'm kind of beginning to panic again. But I looked up at the top of the page and I saw the word Romans. I didn't really know what that was. But I said, Russell, is, is this the New Testament? He said, yeah. I said, Russell, I, I'm Jewish. I, I don't believe in the New Testament. He said, Gary, this is the word of God. And the pressure on my chest got harder. <laughs> More conviction just pounding me. He says, you know, Gary, there's a retirement plan. There's an eternal paycheck, if you will, for sin. He flipped a few pages and he read me this. For the wages of sin is death. 
separation from holy God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. When he said the name Jesus Christ, boy, something big jumped up inside me. Jesus Christ. You mean like the guy that all these people in Europe had murdered my people and mistreated them for nearly 1,900 years? You mean Jesus Christ like what you say when you stub your toe or hit your thumb with a hammer? Like a cuss word. See, I, I had Hebrew school teachers that had survived the Holocaust. I grew up with stories of the persecution of Jews throughout Europe. Many of these people are claiming to be followers of this Jesus. But something deeply powerful began to pierce my heart. The realization that I am a sinner. And the realization that Jesus isn't. That he paid my penalty, the penalty of death. I realized that's what was happening in that movie. They were crucifying him. I also realized that if I would humble myself, be willing to turn from my sins and turn toward the living God, to live life on his terms, his way, that he would have mercy on me. I was born again that night. Something began to grow in me the next few days. The realization of how much mercy I'd been shown, it made me want to love him, to know him, and obey him. A few days later, maybe a week, I called Russell one day and I said, Russell, uh, as a Christian, isn't there something I'm supposed to be doing? He said, yes, as a matter of fact, there is. I said, okay, hang on a second. And I put the phone down. This is before cordless phones. Went and got some paper and a pencil, came back. And I said, okay, go ahead, tell me. He says, well, the first thing is you need to read your Bible every day. I said, okay, hang on a second. Number one, read my Bible every day. Okay, number two, what else? He says, well, then secondly, you need to talk to Jesus every day. I'm like, okay, hang on. Talk to Jesus every day. Number three, what else? He's like, that's, that's it, Gary. I said, Russell, come on. I'm a Jew. You know, I know the deal. There's, there's got to be a lot of stuff to do, a lot of religious activity. You know? He said, Gary, you're not in a religion. You're in a relationship. See, the very thing I had asked that Yom Kippur day, I want to know you. He said, you do those two things, Gary. And Jesus will take it from there. You know, he was right. I sat down and began to read the Bible. I could not put it down. I know this may sound weird, but it was like I was there. With every scene that I would read, it was like I could, I could feel the Judean dirt between my toes. You know, <laughs> if I was wearing sandals, I was like I could, I could see the people's faces in the events that were going on. It became open and real to me. I also couldn't put it down. I read it in the morning. I read it during the day whenever I had a chance at work. I read it at night when I got home. I read it before I went to bed. I was like a vacuum. I just was sucking this into myself. And by the time I got to the end of Joshua, 
where he's basically giving a farewell address. His time is about over. And um, he's, he's giving this, this speech. When he gets to verse 15, chapter 24, he says this. But of serving the Lord, by the way, if you have an English Bible, you might see the word Lord in all caps. That's the English translator's way of letting you know that in the Hebrew text, it's the name Yahweh. So I could read this, but of serving Yahweh, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of David, the God of the prophets, the God and Father of Jesus of Nazareth. If serving him seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, that would be back to Abraham, where he came from, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're currently living. And then this sentence. This sentence, it's like it, it got woven into my DNA when I read it. But as for me and my house, my family, we will serve the Lord. 